Well, I would like to welcome all our listeners again to our uh, very inspiring podcast show that we uh, have here as Project 100. Project 100 is an initiative where we help people to find their purpose, and we do that by cultivating connections so that we can discover a future of greater possibilities. And we are really fortunate to have today in our show, in our podcast uh, listening booth, Phoebe Gavin from the United States, Washington, D.C., if I understand. She just shared a small secret with me that it's not the sun that's shining on her face, but it's an, uh, a desk light over there. But uh, we hope that this conversation will be uh, illuminating enough to inspire our visitors. So uh, good day, Phoebe. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Phoebe, you engaged with one of our team members, uh, Daniel, who's based in Mexico during one of the recent uh, events in, in New York uh, around, I think it was the, the, the Fast Company uh, innovation event that you both uh, visited. Um, and of course, he had an introduction from you already. He knows your background. But maybe for our listeners, can you maybe briefly introduce yourself? What's your background? What's your passion? What's your profession? Sure. So uh, my name is Phoebe Gavin. I am a career and leadership coach and a talent advocate. And I am really excited about the prospect of repairing our relationship to work. And I have found that that is my true passion in life. I've always been really excited about the idea of helping people make better decisions, making them, helping them make decisions that uh, improve their lives, improve their enjoyment and experience of their lives. And over the last several years, I've really settled into um, the intersection between work and life and helping that be a healthier intersection. And I work on that from two angles. I work on it from the individual angle in my career coaching practice, but I also work on it from the organizational level in my day job, where I am executive director of talent and development at Vox.com. That's V-O-X.com, which is a U.S. news site. And in my role at Vox, I am responsible for really paying attention to the employee experience and starting that all the way at the beginning uh, when candidates come in for our open roles, all the way through when they are working with us, all the way through to when they leave, and really making sure that they have the best possible experience in that intersection. And then a big piece of that is working with our leaders in our organization, but also working with leaders in my leadership coaching practice to make sure that those individual leaders are making choices that improve the experience that employees have in their workplaces. And that seems like very essential work to me to make sure that leaders understand how they impact the mental health of the people who are um, reporting into them, because uh, our relationship with work is very much honed by the experiences we have with the people who manage us at work. So I really look at this uh, relationship from a 360 degree perspective. There's lots of work to be done from everyone, uh, but it seems like work that can be done. I think that we can get to a place where work sits comfortably in our lives versus something that is always competing for our attention and competing for our time. Wow, that's a lot in, uh, in one and a half minutes, but uh, it, it's amazing. And it, it triggers a few conversations I think we as, an, as a project team also had over the last couple of years in terms of how to balance work and life. And in that sense, I think I have an, a first question about that. And I do not want to forget about uh, the repairing the relationship with work as you uh, see it as your mission as well. But maybe to go back to work-life balance. Is there... A balance or in other words 
is there work and life that needs to be separated in your opinion or is the balance maybe defined in a different way I think people really want there to be one answer to this question, and it is a very individual question. There are some people who want a lot of separation between work and life. There are some people who want a lot of integration between work and life. And there's a way to find balance for you as an individual, but it starts with understanding what your ideal orientation is. There, I am definitely someone who likes that integration. Uh, I like to, I work every day, seven days a week I work. Um, but I, um, there are, there's lots of space in my days of for breaks and for personal time and for my dogs and for my partner and for my mental and my physical health. And so working seven days a week isn't depleting for me because that there's lots of life interspersed into that work. There are other people who have a very different orientation and what I just described sounds like an absolute nightmare. And they really want to be able to turn on and turn off and have a very strong separation between work and life. There's nothing wrong with that. But balance for that person means being able to maintain those boundaries without experiencing negative repercussions in their personal or professional lives. And so I, um, I always push back at the idea of there being one definition. I think we each need to understand what our personal definition is and do some introspection and reflection to understand what that ideal um, outcome might look like for us and then articulate what balance is for us and then work toward building and maintaining that over time. Do you believe that the world out there, and I don't mean only the workers and let's say the, the people, but also organizations in general understand that there is a diverse perspective on work-life balance or do also employers want to assume there's work and when you leave the office or when you switch off Zoom, uh, it, that's that's the uh, the life side of people. Uh, do do employers recognize this complex and diverse reality? I think it very much depends on the employer. I very much look at this at the employment at the work culture as having this split between the sort of backward facing industrial revolution style orientation to work and then a forward looking whole human orientation toward work. And we're finding a lot of newer companies that are starting up in the last 10 to 20 years are a lot more willing to look toward this more holistic understanding of workers as human beings who have complex and, and vivid lives that are within and outside of work. And those sorts of organizations are going to be a lot more open to the idea that um, work-life integration or work-life balance or work-life separation means different things to different people. And we'll understand that there are benefits to making space for people to define that for themselves and that those individuals can still drive really great organizational outcomes and can do that better because they are achieving their ideal um, their ideal balance of work and life. But then there are lots of organizations and they often are um, older than 20 or 30 years old who are very their work uh, structure, their culture is very much organized around the sorts of principles of the industrial revolution, which was much more around productivity and output and measuring performance. How many widgets can you create in your shift at the factory? And those sorts of organizations really struggle to um, think that they're to embrace the idea that um, whole humans are complex individuals and that we have needs at work and we have needs at home. And 
we have needs in our personal lives and that all of those are valid and need to take up space in our lives. And they're much more likely to take up and be willing to take up as much space in our lives as possible while giving as little as possible to our lives. And so, and again, a situation where I hesitate to paint with a, with a broad brush because um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of variance in how, um, you know, top leadership at various organizations try to um, orient themselves toward this new reality that we're moving towards. Some are very resistant to it and some are very open to it and some are very actively seeking it out and are trying to be at the vanguard of moving in that direction. And it really depends on um, the, for an individual who's trying to find one of those organizations that is gonna, going to be a good match for their personal preferences. And there really is a lot of work to do at the beginning when you're thinking about what's important to you and at the beginning of an application process or research, researching roles or even researching what kind of work to do to try to land in a place that is as aligned as possible with your ideal um, situation. Interesting that you bring that up. Um... And maybe a last question from my side, and then let's see how the rest of the of the panelists here can uh, chip in as well. Um, about that balance and uh, the, the fact that uh, you, you said in the beginning that one of your drives is to help people to repair the relationship with work uh, or uh, the alignment with uh, their work. Like, I'm curious to hear what that actually means for you, but maybe was there also a personal reality or a personal story in your life that actually triggered you to start focusing on helping others to repair the relationship with work? What can you share about your own experiences there? So I come from a low-income background and both my parents are, um, neither of my parents graduated from college. My dad is a plumber. My mom is a house cleaner. And so the idea of having a good relationship with work is a healthy relationship with work was not something that came up in our household because their work was the way that you made the little bit of money that you had to try to get enough to make get by. And so we didn't have the luxury of thinking about work being something that sits comfortably in our lives. And so as I um, moved through the beginning of my professional life, that was not something that was front of mind for me. And I found that I ended up having a very unhealthy relationship with work because it was very much tied to the financial scarcity that I experienced as a child. And so the fear of losing my job, the fear of not having enough money, the fear of, of um, you know, uh, not pleasing my employer and having my finances be at risk really pushed me to endure treatment that I shouldn't have uh, endured and to give more of myself than the organizations that I worked for actually deserved. And it wasn't until I had a leader um, really pull me aside and say, hey, you're really going too hard. You're gonna, you're gonna burn yourself out. You're, you're really stretching yourself thin. Um, and you're even, you know, influencing other people on the team to, you know, do a bunch of overtime and come in early and, and come in late. And that's not how I want the team to run. I want people who are going to be on the team for a long time because they do the work and enjoy the work. And you're going so hard that it seems like that's not going to be the case. And I don't want that to happen to the rest of the team. And that was a very impactful conversation for me because I didn't realize what I was doing in the first place. And I certainly didn't realize that it was impacting other people. And that was the first sort of inclination that I had, uh, the first inkling that I had that you don't have to 
give 120% at work or starve to death. Like those aren't the only two options, that there's lots of room in between if you are in an organization that's supportive. And it took me a very long time to learn new habits, but I was able to learn new habits because I was in a team that was supportive. Um, it was another, another lesson that I learned at that same organization is that your team can be an island of safety, even if it's surrounded by an ocean of chaos. The rest of the organization was not a very healthy organization, but that individual team was. And so we were able to build a really strong um, team dynamic that was very healthy, that really supported um, everyone's mental and physical um, and relational health. Um, and we were able to uh, build up that strength and resilience so that when sort of the chaos of the rest of the company um, ended up impacting our team, we were able to really support ourselves through that, but we were also able to sort of limit how often that happened. And so that was another opportunity for me to realize, to have this glimpse of the idea that there are other ways of working and there are other ways of being. And um, it was exciting to me, the idea that that was something you could do. I did find that the work itself from a functional perspective, what I was doing in that job ended up not being the best fit for my interests over the long term. And I did end up moving into uh, another functional position in another company. But the experience of that culture, I really took with me. And in that next position where I had a management position, it was really important for me to recreate that. Um, and then I had a new perspective on it because I had individuals who were reporting into me who had come from very difficult workplaces, very toxic workplaces, workplaces that had frankly traumatized them. And it was interesting to see that um, they almost didn't trust that I cared about them as people. And I really had to earn the, um, the faith that and the belief that I really did want our team to be a little island of safety and that I was going to do the work to make that happen. Um, and when I did get them to that place where they were, they were trusting and they were starting to feel those benefits of having balance and having flexibility and having their needs met, they really started to blossom. And that absolutely inspired me to continue down this path of being the best possible leader I could be and to really help people, uh, the people who are on my team to have that sort of experience at work. But eventually I realized that my ability to um, impact the, our work culture was going to be very limited if the only people who experienced that kind of, the only people I impacted were people who reported into me at an organization that I was working at. And that's why I ultimately decided to um, start my coaching practice where I help individuals find those sorts of workplaces and I help leaders build those sorts of workplaces. What our audience cannot see, but what I can, of course, because we're sitting here in a virtual room together, is uh, a nodding individual uh, of our team. And I was wondering, Valentina, do you have something to reflect on this? Because I see the facial expressions changing the more Phoebe is talking. Um, yes, it's a very very similar experience that I went through, you know, uh, pushing myself to burnout and not realizing why and how and the impact it was having on the team and that I didn't have to do that. Um, starting to lead a team after wanting the team to be safe and people not believing in me at all. Um, so it's all very familiar and I was just wondering sometimes and, and I, I do wonder how much is it a personal experience which I thought it was, you know, just me at the beginning, the first time I heard 
I talked about it and then the more I hear Phoebe talking about it and other women that I talk to I see a bit as a trend in terms of it it's a special it's more statistically more probable to happen to women and women of color I mean I'm 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 Asian partly Asian and I don't know sometimes if it's because we are underestimated when we start the bias and everything or because we hear you've got to be twice as you know you have to be twice as good to be valued half as much as a man that we push ourselves and that people don't trust us because we have always that also that other image which is your woman manager will fright and get herself advanced or whatever other trauma the the teams had but it's um it's an extremely familiar situation that uh, that has happened and um that's why i was like you know nodding along and 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 saying this sounds very very similar to a lot of things and as i said until somebody told me you don't have to push that hard it could be you know my personality the upbringing things we hear i don't know why i mean might be an interesting research at some point but um, it does sounds very familiar and i wonder how many other women also have these similar experiences anecdotally from my coaching practice that is very much the case that um you know that same saying is one that we have in the states one that my mom said to me over and over again as a kid you have to work twice as hard to get half as much because not only are you a woman but you're a black woman not only are you a black woman but you're a black woman from here and from here meant you know sort of where i grew up you know a low income background. And so, you know, she really instilled into me this idea that you have to work very, very, very hard. You have to work harder than everyone else because you, you can't, you don't, aren't going to be able to have the uh, second chances. You aren't going to have the additional advantages that, you know, everyone else is going to have. And, and that certainly has been the case in my life. There have been a lot of times where people, I've worked with people who didn't have as much experience, didn't have as much excellence in their role, wasn't as dedicated, didn't work as hard, but were given the same sorts of opportunities or even better opportunities than I was given. And uh, it reinforced this idea that like you have to work as hard you have to work twice as hard you have to work twice as hard but i'm really glad that i ended up having those experiences in the end that helped me understand that there's a certain amount of that that is true that you can't control that you can't do anything about there's no magical cure for all of the bias in the world we are hardwired to have biases. Um, if you go back into prehistoric times, they were a survival mechanism for us. And so they exist there for a reason, but in our current modern society, they don't serve us and they don't serve our society very well. But that does mean that there's a certain amount of it that's out of my control. What is within my control is to understand myself, understand what's important to me, understand how my baggage, whether that's cultural programming or programming from my parents or programming from pop culture, um, impacts the way that I make decisions. I have control over the opportunities that I seek. I have control over how I respond, over other, how people treat me. I, under, I have control over how much I understand of myself and taking those things that I have control over and doing the best I can with those things can still 
still get really, really good outcomes. And that's what I've experienced in my personal career. And those are the sorts of moments where my coaching clients, whether they are individual professionals or whether they are leaders, those are the sorts of um, aha moments that come up when they realize if you're focused on all of those things that you can't control, you're really leaving a lot of agency and power on control on the table because you actually do have a lot more control over your destiny than you may realize. We have, uh, I think, almost talked to 200 people in two years' times, two and a half years' times, in helping them to discover their purpose. And I think without going into scientific explanation because I'm more about the anecdotal side as well just like you just referred to but the overall impression that I have is is that there is a strong desire by people to discover what motivates them so that they can explain the behavior that they're showing or the happiness that they're experiencing or not experiencing uh, in that sense and also in that context how that work life or work related happiness actually is related to that when you talk to people, leaders, seniors, as well as uh, the workers uh, on, on, the, on the job floor, uh, do you discover or do you experience a similar type of challenges or desires of individuals in finding happiness, in understanding where happiness comes from? Yeah, definitely. I like to think of it in terms of um, a, a kind of currency that there's a certain kind of currency that earning it is, ma- makes you very motivated. Uh, spending it makes you um, uh, makes you concerned, makes you anxious, makes you worried. Um, and then there's certain kinds of currency that you don't care too much about. Um, and so for some people, ego and status is a really important currency for them. And I don't think that, that there's no value that I'm um, attaching to any of these things. Um, I love being on stage. And so those sorts of things are, are certainly very motivating motivating for me. There are ways that you can use ego or status to help others. There are ways you can use ego or status to harm others. And so no values attached, but ego is and status is one of them. Um, Finances is one of them. Impact is one of them. Um, uh, Experience of the experiencing the world. Novelty is one of them. Discovery is one of them. There are so many different types of currency that I, at least the way that I describe it, that can help you understand Uh, What really motivates you? What are you willing to work to get? Are you willing to work to get opportunities to build something new? Are you willing to work to get opportunities to fix something? Are you willing to work to get opportunities that get you in front of um, lots of people? Um, And often that is sort of that surface level where you can start digging from where there's going to be gold at the bottom. You know, we want to make sure that we're digging in the right place when we're looking in within ourselves to understand ourselves. And I find that that's a really good place to start. And for some people, um, you know, I, I'm thinking about a client that I actually spoke to, spoke to earlier this morning, and this person's currency is very much around impact. But when we dig down into it, it really does come from this understanding of how at risk uh, the community that this person came from, how at risk that community is, and a desire to uh, improve outcomes for that particular community. And so the impact is very specific and articulated when you spend some time really reflecting. When I think about the times when I've been able to make an impact, when have I worked the hardest, even through the most adversity to get there? And when have I gotten there and not felt so great about it? And that helps you really suss out where are the, the sources of passion and motivation and inspiration for you that are really, really meaningful versus some that look like or seem like they should be, but maybe are not. 
Um, it again goes back to that cultural programming that I mentioned earlier. A lot of times we are culturally programmed to prioritize certain things that aren't actually that important to us. And sometimes we will work really hard to achieve those things and then realize, why doesn't this feel satisfying? And it doesn't feel satisfying because you are pursuing someone else's values versus your own. You are pursuing someone else's purpose versus your own. And so really spending that time reflecting on what kinds of outcomes make me most excited? And when I work for those outcomes, what's the difference between when I feel really gratified when I achieve them versus when I don't? Daniel, what makes you satisfied? Meeting people like the, like all of you. <laughs> Because, yeah, uh, I, I well, I have told this to, to my team uh, a couple of times that it's it's been hard for me in my personal story to find people that actually care about all of this, know that they really understand what is important as a human being and then as a society uh, and not the typical stuff of what the system will push you forward to to care about. And I love this uh, this analogy that you are talking about, Phoebe, that currencies, no? because that's something that everyone can can picture it, that uh, if, you, if you have a pile of interest into something, but that pile of interest doesn't interest the other one, It, it doesn't matter how much you have it. No? And so we can have a lot of impact. We can have a lot of motivation and desire to change the world. But if that person doesn't want change, it's not important for them, at least. No? Um, you, you actually just answered the question that I had. But I just wanted to mention something that I took from my notes from the conversation where I met Phoebe that she, she talked about burnout in a specific and, and a very nice question or way, or way to think about it, which is, Are you tired or are you tired of it, right? Because that's when you can understand something is wrong for a moment or something is wrong systematically or in a bigger scale, something that you may not be controlling, but that you have the decision to change it for yourself or for your team or something that you care, but you don't necessarily need to be there, right? And that's important. So I just wanted to mention that I don't have any other questions. So I give the space to, to Sandy or anyone else. Well, before we jump to Sandy, I'm really glad that you brought that up because uh, the, the relationship between burnout and purpose is a very, very tight relationship. Um, when you are um, ex expending resources, whether they are monetary resources, emotional energy, time, whatever resources you are expending, when you are expending those in pursuit of something that's aligned with your purpose, that expenditure goes a lot farther. You know, it's like you're in a really energy efficient vehicle. Um, when you are um, expending those resources into something that is not purpose aligned, then it doesn't go as far. And if you are expending those resources in pursuit of something that is counter to your resources, they don't go very far at all. And so when you think about that in terms of burnout, burnout is a function of chronic depletion. And so you're expending resources, expending resources, expending resources, and not getting enough replenished. When we think about those three scenarios, something that is counter, something that is aligned, something that's kind of neutral, If you are finding that the work that you're doing is really burning you out and you feel like you are consistently feeling depleted, 
it's really important to check in on that alignment because it's possible that's that same amount of effort applied in the direction of something that is aligned for you is actually going to not is not going to keep you in the burnout cycle the depletion cycle where you're expending and not replenishing expending and not replenishing because the work itself isn't going to be as depleting when i think about um times when i have worked in very values aligned companies in very values aligned roles um, you know, working uh, on a weekend didn't really feel like depleting to me. It felt interesting and exciting and worthwhile to me because it was in service of something that was very aligned with me. On the other hand, the exact same sorts of requests in a company or in a, a role that was not aligned, it felt like so incredibly depleting. It felt so incredibly costly to work that weekend because it wasn't in pursuit of something that was deeply aligned with who I am as a person. And so one of the ways to solve for burnout, because no matter work, what, work is always going to be depleting. You're always going to be spending energy, time, emotion, always. Um, the, if you were spending that um, those resources in a way that's aligned with your values, those resources are going to go a lot farther, which means once you get to the end of the day, you get to the end of the week, your tank isn't going to be as depleted and you're going to have a lot more leeway to fill it up with the sorts of uh, activities or people who replenish you, which means your overall experience in that role is going to be a lot more sustainable. And the opposite is absolutely true when that alignment isn't there. It is interesting that you bring it in that way. I always have now the image of that hybrid vehicle, let's say, where you put fuel in and by action and motion, you actually you re-energize, uh, not the engine, but the, the hybrid system. So purpose is a kind of a fuel that you put in your own uh, hybrid vehicle in that sense. But also, uh, this I absolutely love vehicles as metaphors that, you know, the way a hybrid vehicle works is that you use gas to go faster, but then when you slow down, when you brake, energy goes into the battery and charges it up. And so yeah. slowing down, the importance of slowing down is so important for our longevity in our, our relationships and in our relationship with work as much too, to really being aware of when am I speeding up versus slowing down? Am I charging up my battery or am I always, always, always burning off gas? Um, it's a really important one to think about. And so I'm glad that you brought up that idea as well. Yeah. Um... Sandy, you work with a team compared to uh, Daniel and myself. And I think also Valentina is much more also acting as an individual professional and with working with remote teams. You're now working with a new team in Germany. What type of challenges do you see in your team uh, in terms of finding the hybrid mode of their engines, so to say? I think what Phoebe touched on earlier was something that I didn't really think a lot about is that like everyone preferred different ways of working some people prefer more like a um, integration like i am one of those <laughs> and some actually likes to have this total on and off and i guess working as a team as a challenge is how do we accommodate all the differences that we have as a team um especially working remotely um and even harder if you're working with people across different time zones and how do we actually catch up with all the different time that we prefer to work and still be able to work together that is i think that's one of the big challenge that um working as a team here 
That's a good challenge. It's a, it's a, it's a tough one, but I do think it comes down to being first starting with that self-awareness, being really clear about what is important to you, what you care about, what you prioritize, what's energizing, what's depleting, and then being proactive and giving lots of space and giving people lots of permission to share that with each other. So um, I've always shared that with my direct reports through a, a document that's uh, that's my manual where people, when someone comes onto the team, I share that manual with them. And one of the things that are that's in it is how I like to work. Um, and I'm really clear with them that like this is the way that I like to work. It may not necessarily be the way that you like to work, but I'm curious about how you would like to work. And I'm looking forward to building a working relationship and a working dynamic that facilitates both of us operating at our highest level. Um, and the fact that I share that with a new person and everyone on my team has theirs and shares them with that new person really helps that person integrate into the team quickly and also reinforces the idea that we are all whole people. We all show up to work with our own preferences and we are all have a very explicit agreement to try to find the best working relationship, the best working dynamic that balances all of our different preferences. But there's never going to be a situation where 100% of us get 100% of what we want. And so that's also part of the reason why building those, the, the equity in the relationships, really putting lots of money in that relationship bank is really important because if, um, you know, someone who is working with me has to flex for me because, you know, for whatever reason, my priorities need to supersede theirs. If we have strong, a strong working relationship, a nice long working history of, of being productive and constructive and, and kind to each other, they are going to be willing to make that compromise. And then the opposite will also be true that if we're in a situation where their preferences need to supersede, I'm not going to be upset about that if I have a long history of, of uh, receiving kindness and generosity and flexibility from them. And so there's always going to be that push and pull. But if you are taking active steps to build those relationships, strengthen those working relationships, those occasional compromises are not going to feel uncomfortable because they're going to be mutual. Very insightful. Just let us have to let it sink in a little bit uh, to, to let it land, I think, uh, in my brain. Go ahead, Sandy. Oh, I just have a very curiosity question here. Just listening to us like talking about this topic about purpose and how do we uh, find our, our motivation to work and all that. And it just kind of came to my mind that we have the privilege to actually think about this stuff. But what about the people who they are basically working to survive. What can they do to balance that? Can they still somehow use this concept in the way, even though if they don't get the money, they can't survive? Like, I, I just, it's just like a, like, are we trying to solve a third world only problem here? Or do you think this can also be solved in a, in the other level, I, I just, it's just a curiosity question. I like to, I like to hear what you think about that. 
Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting question. And um, I agree that there's a certain amount of privilege to the idea of being in a developed economy where you uh, can work in a knowledge function and have control over your time and control over your schedule and control over where you work. There's an incredible amount of privilege that comes with that, that allows you to center your purpose much more than people who don't have those sorts of qualities about the way that they navigate the world. But that doesn't mean that you know purpose is only available, it's only a privilege available to those of us who are in the that particular um, you know area of the world and the particular area of the working economy. Um, I think if you look at the literature around generosity, you will find very, very, very quickly that people with very little find a great deal of purpose in their life through giving. And we find that the, um, you know, I don't have the exact, exact stats in front of me, but low-income people are much more generous as a percentage of their time and as a percentage of their money than rich people are by extraordinary, extraordinary uh, degrees, a massive, massive, massive difference. And people don't give, especially when giving is difficult, unless it is coming from a place of purpose. And um, when I think of this playing out in my life, I remember, I think of it in terms of you know my childhood and growing up low income. You know, I wasn't growing up in, uh, you know, in a develop in the developing world. I grew up in the United States, but I, um, which is a certain uh, and certainly a great deal of privilege in and of itself. But I did come from a low income background where um, it was really hard to make ends meet, and my parents still fed other families. My parents still volunteered in their community. My parents still volunteered in their church and drugged me along with all of those things. And so I observed them struggling while also giving, and that comes from a place of purpose. Now, obviously, if um, you know they had the sorts of means to um, to not be struggling, I'm sure they would still give. Um, and so I, I I think that. There is a certain, I'm glad that there's a certain amount of recognition that this is the sort of conversation that certain kinds of people get to have and certain kinds of people don't get to have. Um, but I also want to really underline the idea that generosity is part of the human condition. We are hired, hardwired to be generous because we are hardwired to seek community. Community is a, uh, was a survival mechanism for our hunter-gatherer ancestors. And so no matter where you are socioeconomically, no matter where you are geographically, there is a certain desire to build community. And the best way to get, build community is to give. Beautiful. I, uh, again, I have to let this sink in. And thank you, Sandy, for, uh, for that reflective question, because I think... Uh, the world is struggling at large and then we need to understand that uh, the distribution of energy, of wealth, of uh, prosperity is so unbalanced in the world already. And if then purpose and, and giving back can be distributed in the way Phoebe is describing, that would be an amazing, uh, I think, engine for sustainability in a, in a different way. But it's hard to recognize that people are in privileged positions and therefore it's easier to live a purposeful life uh, in the way we all want to do. One thing I was reading, though, is that um, there is, as, as Phoebe was saying, there's absolutely a correlation between low income, uh, lower income people being more generous. I actually did quite a few of the uh, Purpose 100 interview with people which are in low income countries, and it takes a lot less to achieve the purpose. And so I think when you're when you think about the hierarchy of needs, the famous Maslow hierarchy of needs, uh, 
when you are in a low in, lower income country, your purpose sometimes it's get to the high, the, the one category higher, and it could be easier to achieve, and it's more collective because then it lifts everybody. And in our developed country, to get our purpose, our needs becomes higher and higher and higher because we have everything else, right? So it becomes, in a way, almost harder to give and to see this collectiveness, as, as Phoebe was saying. And I'm, I'm, I remember a lot of those uh, Purpose 100 interview with uh, people that were um, in less developed or less economically wealthy country. You know, just a little bit of seeing how in their situation they could achieve their purpose, which would be give back to the country, give back to society very often was easier. But another thing which I wanted to share on this and ask uh, Phoebe her view is um, one book I read recently, I think it was called The Purpose Economy or Passion Economy. I don't. I, need, I would have to check the book for the episode's notes. Daniel, I'll, I'll send it back to you. Um, talked about how, in a way, we are all chasing our purpose and our passion in this new economy, especially um, elder millennials and the newer generation. And that's actually something that leads potentially to more burnout. Because you have this myth, again, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life, which means that often the corporation machines take advantage of the fact that you should be grateful because you're working, leaving your purpose, and therefore you shouldn't limit it to 38 hours or, or 40 or 42, and you're not really working. This is what your purpose is. And it tends to build this kind of gratefulness. I should be happy. I'm doing my purpose. I work more. And although burnout partially it's linked us to what you were saying, when you're doing something that is not meaningful to you, sometimes you're doing something meaningful to you, but you're either doing too much of it or you're being asked to do it in a way which is not authentic to yourself, you know, dress in a certain way. Speak. So it, it could still cause burnout and I wonder if there is, if Phoebe's seen it happening or if there is some kind of correlation to people feel even almost like more guilty for it. It's easier to admit burnout when you work for an evil corporation that when you're doing something you love and you're still burning out after a while. Yeah, definitely. This is uh, uh, one that I definitely have personally experienced when I worked in a nonprofit sphere, I think in the United States, um, in particular, I, you know, I can't speak for other geographies, I don't have that experience, but NGOs in the US tend to really lean on this idea of, um, you know, if you are motivated by impact, then show up and do the work and you won't get paid as much and you'll work a lot harder, but you'll be having an impact, you'll be making an impact. And um, the, the job where I, that I mentioned earlier in the, uh, our conversation today, where I was working really, really hard, partially was also because of this desire for impact and wanting to make a big impact. And I knew that me working harder meant um, more uh, beneficial outcomes for the population that this nonprofit was seeking to serve. And, um, you know, another thing that we talked about a little bit earlier is this idea that, you know, when you're working in a values aligned, um, a values aligned role in a values aligned company, it's like being in a really energy efficient car that goes faster with the same amount of gas. Well, it's still going to run out of gas eventually. And when we put these two um, concepts together, um, it can be really toxic. 
Um, and there are uh, lots of conversations, um, you know, at least the ones that I observe in the U.S. about the culture that um, the kinds of cultures, the kind of exploitive um, cultures that NGOs can have here in the United States where they really um, exploit this idea that, you know, people who show up want to to these sorts of roles care about impact more than they care about themselves. And um, that is not sustainable. It's not sustainable at all. And I find that a lot of those folks, you know, and I count myself as, as one of them, will find that um, you got get burned out on the work and then you have to find something else to do. And that feels like a betrayal of the population that you initially set out to serve. And that can, it can create this cognitive dissonance and this um, sort of moral injury that I am prioritizing my own needs and my own happiness over society. Does that make me a bad person? And there's a lot of work to be done to sort of understand whether that is what's playing out in your career strategy at a particular time. Um, but ultimately, the my hope for folks who are sort of wrangling with this is to get to a point where impact, if your if your currency, your personal meaning uh, currency for meaning is impact, there are a lot of ways that that can show up in your life. And I actually feel in my life now that I have more impact by not being in an NGO than by having the time and the energy and uh, the flexibility to bring generosity and giving and volunteering and giving back in so many areas of my life and to structure my business around purpose and to structure um, you know the other types of work that I do around purpose and to bring purpose into all of my life, I have so much more emotional and time energy for that now than I did when I was working for that NGO. And so thinking about all the different ways that impact can show up in your life, the generosity and giving can go back can show up in your life is absolutely essential if a purpose-filled life is also going to be a balanced life. In the uh, interest of time, because time is a valuable currency for all of us and also for our listeners. Even the ones that are driving their car at this moment at high speed on the road and listening towards us as part of the podcast. A final question uh, from me, and I hope that you can uh, bring that all together. If you had to give that person in our audience, that one person in our audience that's listening to this podcast, a small advice of how to maybe align better or realign better their working life with their purpose or even with their working life. What would your recommendation be as a closure of this show? Everything starts with self-knowing. You have to know yourself. And most of us do self-knowing exercises, learning about ourselves in our heads. And that is probably the worst place you can do it. It's really hard to organize all of those thoughts and ideas and questions and concerns in a line and take a look at them and really figure out what's important. So get it out of your head and put it on paper, whether that's analog or digital. Take some time to sit down and ask yourself some really deep questions about what is important to you. How do you want to navigate the world? How do you want to spend your time? How do you want to spend your energy? Where do you find the most joy? and get that out of your head so that you can look at it and say, okay, I wrote down that these are the things that are important to me. And now when I compare that to how I'm spending my time, I can see that there's a misalignment. This is very, very difficult to do in your head. So make sure you do it on paper. Yeah, totally. And that will be a perfect end for this because yeah, we help others try to understand better themselves. And at the same time, we do for ourselves when we have these conversations with them. 
So I just want to say thank you one more time to everyone here, especially Phoebe for being our wonderful guest and giving so much insights and wonderful stories. Uh, round of applause to her. And I also I just want to give you the space to let everyone that is listening uh, that wants to connect with you or know more about you where they can find you. Great. Thank you all so much for spending some time with me today. I hope you've gotten value out of today's episode. If you'd like to connect with me personally, I am on all your favorite social media platforms as Better With Phoebe. And if you'd like to connect with me to do some of this self-knowing or self-development work to build your own career or to build your leadership skills, you can find me at betterwithphoebe.com. Thank you, Phoebe. Have a great life. Thank you. You as well.